Welcome to The Legal Tea, the podcast we interview lawyers bring beyond corporate law. Each week you'll hear about their practice area, the work that they do, and the roads they've taken to get there. I'm your host, Max Herberg. How's everyone doing this week? You might remember from the beginning of the season that one of our objectives this year at Legal Tea was to present a new type of episode, exploring themes not in particular areas of law, but themes facing the legal industry in general. Well, today we're presenting you with the first episode of that series. This week we'll be sitting down with Luke Doherty, a managing director at Mindful Peak Performance, a non-profit dedicated to sharing a mindfulness-based approach to performance. Luke works with a variety of people from high-profile corporate executives to professional athletes to disadvantaged youths, all at aiming at mindfulness and the utility of meditation. In the episode, we discuss what mindfulness is, the toxic effects of hustle culture and its centrality to identity, particularly amongst men, and how to use mindfulness not only to be more in touch with ourselves, but also how to get more in touch with doing what we love. Outside the practice areas, we discuss Luke's own professional journey, from playing rugby for England to becoming a director for a charity, becoming a Buddhist, and starting his own mindfulness company. But we also take some time to get personal with Luke and talk about his own personal journey in the background. So without further ado, sit back, relax, brew yourself a cuppa, and enjoy the show. morning Luke welcome to Legal Tea how are you doing today yeah not too bad January just getting back into the swing of things after a break over Christmas looking forward to doing this podcast you know it honestly after after the holidays I always feel that January is always the slouch period just getting back into the routine of things and we're very excited to have you here today on the podcast Um, but before we kind of jump in I was wondering if you wouldn't mind for the audience telling us a little bit about yourself Yep. So my name is Luke Doherty. Currently, I'm the Managing Director of Mindful Peak Performance, and I teach meditation to athletes, business leaders, um, corporate organizations, and our work supports um, our charitable aim, which is bringing meditation and mindfulness to disadvantaged groups of young people. And we do that through boxing and meditation. So I manage the organization and do the key teaching um, and build partnerships with other organizations, help us spread and reach more people. At a time where I think it's it's really needed, and particularly in January as well, I think mindfulness and things that can help you pick yourself up at a time where, yeah, it can be quite challenging. It's, yeah, busy time for me, and that's, broadly speaking, that's what I do. And I mean, it's amazing that kind of the, all the all the areas and all the people that you work with. And I mean, I, I can't wait to jump into that, but I feel in order to really appreciate the work that you do now, we have to start kind of uh, at the beginning and especially kind of the, the very kind of varied career journey you've had because your career is quite a unique one. You know, before you even started studying law, you went on to play rugby for England, as I understand that correctly. What was, what was that experience like and, and why, what motivated you to do that? Um. There's two levels to this. On one level, I just enjoy sport. It was like, for me, it kept me sane as a young man. Loads of energy, loads of all sorts of emotions, feelings. Rugby was just like the container for just exploring my energy and explosive and loads of fun. 
we had a group of about four of us who were friends right from the age of 13 to 18 and we all wanted to be professional rugby players so we we just sort of developed a little kind of goal around that and particularly one of my friends who did go on to be a professional we just set the goal of playing rugby for England and it became the framework of my my youth really and my my teen years and yeah and, you know the bonds you create when you're playing sport the coaches everything's got got such positive motifs around it and just really enjoyed it but yeah, the other side of it was it was um, it was a way for me to express my energy at a time where there was a lot going on in my life as a teen, and it just it kind of saved me. I think we didn't have rugby as an outlet. I don't know what my life would have become. So it was it was yeah so important to me. Looking back, I can see the the deeper significance of having team, having friends, having physical outlet, and yeah, gave me purpose. Especially in like team sport like rugby, that idea of kind of camaraderie, almost kind of like a family, uh, the, the team that it is. I was wondering if, if you wouldn't mind kind of sharing a little bit about, you know, you were saying that there was so much going on in your own life that kind of rugby became kind of that outlet for energy. Yeah. You know, would you mind telling us what it was? Yeah, for me, it was um, it was a particular time when my mum and dad divorced and um, it was quite a traumatic experience for me um, for various reasons. And I, I, to be very personal, I knew my dad was having an affair for, for a year. And as a, as a young as a young man, I bottled that up and I didn't understand those emotions. And I sort of held this secret in the family, if you like. And I didn't know what, I didn't know how to come to terms with that as a, as a 15 year old. And it, yeah, rugby was just the outlet. And I guess like the symbolism of family and friendship and connection, it just held me throughout that whole period. And having good coaches, good role models, all these things kind of helped stabilize me as a person and I, I I'm only appreciating that this now as I look back because I wasn't really aware of of the pain of that when I was younger but yeah it had a big impact on me psychologically emotionally and rugby was and the friendships and the outlet and the yeah having a goal and and something that just kept my life moving positively forward and then when I was ready when I was older I could then start coming to terms with the the pain of that time but I wasn't able already to do that when I was younger so yeah, it, it was amazing, really. What 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 the framework, sport, and rugby, and all of the all of the things that come with that gave gave me such a structure and a purpose. At that time, especially you know, as a teenager, you know, you can't really expect to be able to kind of deal deal, deal with all that. And so, yeah. my question is kind of you know, what then led you to kind of want to study law? Because I could imagine you know, you're playing rugby for England. You know, you get to such a high level of athletic performance you know you you think you know why not just do make make a career out of this and, and spend the rest of my life doing this I did think about it and I I think I became realistic because rugby is highly competitive I was playing a position that was one of the most physical positions and I was quite small so I knew that actually to make a leap and go for professional sport was not realistic and I kind of maybe I didn't know that consciously but I knew it in my gut that actually I've reached as far as I can go with this and I think I I think I knew that. So I, yeah, I, I, I consciously chose not to try and move forward with professional sport and law became, I don't know, it was like the next thing I could put my drive towards. Um, I wanted success. I wanted money. I wanted, yeah, maybe these were some of the, mo- see, these were some of the motives that were driving me. Um, I was never particularly interested in law, if I'm honest with you. I remember having a conversation with my dad and he said, why don't you study law? And I was like, you must be joking. Why would I do that? But then I ended up doing it. So maybe there was also an influence from my dad as well and doing something that looked socially acceptable and and responsible and doing something that could build my build a future that's stable and safe. So maybe maybe it was that I actually wanted to study fine art actually. 
that was where my passion was. And I've always been, I've always had an art practice right throughout my whole life. So I didn't really follow my gut. I followed my head and maybe what I saw as sort of a socially acceptable route. So that, that was my actual, my instinct. But it, it was also, it was a vehicle for my drive, incredibly driven and still am. It, it, it causes me pain. Maybe we can come on to that later. But yeah, it was, it was an outlet for my drive. And I realised at that age, because of the conditioning around sport, it showed me that if I'm disciplined, I can do anything that I want. And I found some really interesting things in law. It was never me temperamentally. I didn't think it was it was right for me. But because of the discipline and structure I developed around sport, I was able to do it and put the discipline in to, to make it successful. I find that very interesting. And, and as you said, I, I, we'll probably get into it later, this 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 kind of common theme of, of drive, but also kind of discipline and kind of, you know, moving forward, almost kind of, you know, just doing things, even though, you know, instinctually or, you know, gut feeling, they might not feel right. But from a kind of chronological perspective, you you went into law, not really sure that it was your thing. And I was kind of wondering for you, you know, at what point in your kind of legal journey or kind of in, in law school, did you realize, you know what, actually, I definitely know this isn't for me. You know, was it a kind of particularly like moment in time or was it just the fact that, you know, this feeling at the beginning where you didn't really feel that sure kind of kept lingering around as you progressed? It was, it started as a lingering feeling as just like this, this doesn't feel right. Um, But I didn't have any other alternative at that time. And again, like with the, I didn't feel like I was doing the right thing, particularly in the first two years. In the third year, when I when you get more autonomy to choose your options, I got a real spark and interest in some particular areas that actually linked me into how I got into Buddhism and, and, and all sorts of other things. But the first two years, I found it no, I, it didn't it didn't spark anything in me. But again, the friendships I developed at uni and the people I met and my girlfriend at the time and all of the things, all the social elements made it made it meaningful. So yeah, the first two years I had this feeling this is not for me. The third year. I started to become interested in some particular areas of law. And then when I finished law, the penny dropped and I was like, no, this isn't for me. But looking back now, particularly, I I became interested in some of the kind of more alternative uh, modules that were on the the legal, uh, on our program. One of them was law um, and non-Western legal systems. And one of them was law and philosophy. And that sparked a real interest in me in kind of just looking at how different particularly non-Western legal systems. I looked at Islamic law, Hindu law, African legal systems, looking at also how different legal systems operate informally within our own culture, how how religious and cultural elements of how people operate in society create their own kind of informal laws. And, and I just I became interested in, in, in sort of an alternative ways of looking at law. And that actually, if I look back, one of my professors, he lived over the road from the Buddhist center and I used to go and hang out with him. And I I think it was one of the one of the threads that pulled me towards Buddhism, just look like wanting to live in a different culture, wanting to experience a different value system and within and still live in London. So that's why I ended up living and working at the Buddhist center. It's one of the reasons. But yeah, I think that it wasn't in my gut, but there were things in the in the in the legal training and, and the people I met that inspired me along along the way and, and then helped me make steps towards doing doing something different as well. So it wasn't just black and white. I don't like law. It was the first two years I realised that I guess corporate law and in particular didn't interest me, but the more philosophical and alternative ways of of, of studying and looking at other legal systems did. 
And what was that like at the at the end of kind of, you know, your law degree? You kind of came to the decision kind of personally that, you know, the legal route isn't for you and you want to seek some uh, something else. But I was wondering, you know, if, if, you, if you don't mind sharing with us, you know, how hard that was from, let alone kind of like a social perspective or kind of an economic perspective, you know, going going off the kind of the well-beaten path, you know, I can imagine you, especially, you know, not only from practically, you know, not being just a well alternative route, but also leaving that social kind of circle or convention. Yeah, it was, it, you know, I felt quite lost after university, if I'm honest, in the same way that when I played for England, I felt a bit lost at, when I when I finished that chapter. I felt very lost because I put so much drive into into the rugby, and then I realised it's it's not where I'm going. And there was a period of being quite lost and like, what was that all about? And now I understand the meaning of it and the, and the, and the support of that time. The same with law. I finished. I put loads of drive into it, and I realised this is not for me. Um, yeah, I felt a bit lost for a while, and I I just had this. Um, I just typed into Google care work or working with people. That I just knew I knew there was I knew I wanted to do something that was working directly with people and people who were suffering and I don't know where that came from it was just an instinct so I followed that um, and I ended up becoming a first of all I ended up becoming a support worker for people with learning disabilities and actually helping them in the community live more independently and I I really enjoyed that but what was difficult about that is that I felt like I was living a bit of a double life because I really enjoyed this job but it was so humble and so far away from the idea of being a lawyer success money it was very humble that I I found it really hard to like tell my friends I was doing this or when I would go back home I would paint different kind of picture about what my job was I found it really hard to come to terms with what I actually wanted to do now that job working with people learning so at least has, has evolved into something now that um, but I can still see that that step towards working with people and doing a job that was really humble and far away from the expectations of my family for me doing law my friends well, like you studied law, so how how are you how are you now working in social care supporting people with learning disabilities? I found that really hard to come to terms with because it didn't give me much of a social standing, but I enjoyed it. So it was a bit of a conflict, actually. And and how did you overcome that conflict? I think a lot of kind of listeners can can appreciate that kind of you know falling below the societal expectation of okay, as a lawyer you do X, Y, and Z, you work at this firm. But at the same time, you know, it's not like you know becoming a, a support worker or a care worker is any less respectable kind of a profession. And in fact, as you were saying, you know, you're having a direct impact on the people that you work with in the community. So I was wondering, you know, how did you what helped you kind of overcome the, this conflict? Well, I I botched it, if I'm honest with you. I <laughs> at, the end, at the end of the day, I just I thought actually no, I need more status. So I after, I very quickly started moving up into into management structures and managing services and wanted to become an operation manager. And my my goal then became to become a director of this charity. That's what. So I kind of thought, well, I'll find status here. And the more I moved up into management and I moved up quite quickly, the more status I I gained, but the more unhappy I became. So I ended up, I was saying I was 23 and I was managing a team of 15 people and we would but it was it was very intense because it was managing care home that had individuals with very complex needs and yeah, very yeah, very complex situation working very closely with social services people who who were at very, very high risk. And I felt well out of my depths emotionally and also like 
I just thought, how have I got myself into this position? So yeah, my kind of drive for status and something that's more that looked more kind of successful drew me away from the thing I actually like doing, which was engaging with people. And um, I learned a lot through through that process. But yeah, I got to a point where I got quite stressed, um, a lot of anxiety, and that's where I found meditation. And meditation helped me connect back to, well, what, what is it you really like doing, Luke? And it, it, it allowed me to come back to the fundamental questions and actually gain confidence that actually, if you like working with people directly, and like, it gave me confidence that that's okay. Like, it, you know, that that's okay. I don't need to, I don't need to have this, um, this hard driven success motif in my mind. But again, I botched it again after that, which we can come on to later, but there's always been this this dance of like wanting to be successful at the same time honor what I actually want to do and I've always had this conflict I feel that you know what what you're describing about kind of botching it or you know having that kind of ambition is is something that a lot of people you know myself included kind of go through it's it's that idea where you know on the one hand I think we all want to actually be happy and and do things that that, that we like but on the other hand it's like we're we're programmed, yeah, you know, yeah. into our DNA to, you know, strive to get better, to, to, to reach the top, to have success, money, fame, whatever you call it, but so elevated social status or standing amongst our society. So how did you come to, to find meditation? Yeah. Just before I answer that, I want to change the word botch it because when I look back, it's the times where I have botched it in inverted commas. They're the times that have been actually most meaningful because they showed me what's actually important. And, and I think you burn off, I burn off some of that crude drive for success through getting it wrong. And I think getting it wrong is, is really important um, in order to like learn about yourself, learn what works, what doesn't work, and the experiences you go through along the way to find what makes you most happy are <clears throat> the most valuable lessons in my been the most valuable lessons in my life. So I digress there. So I think I found meditation. A bit randomly, I just invited a, a friend of mine as a birthday present to, to go and meditate, and I went along with her, and um, it just immediately impacted me. I think it, it got me in touch with my emotions that I was blocking for so long. It just gave me a really deep sense of relaxation and calm and kind of connection to myself. And that just made me, you know, I went back into my, my job, I think, the weekend after I started meditating, and people were like, what's happened to you? Why, why are you being kind? Why are you being open? Like, there was just a shift in how I was relating to people because I was more in touch with myself. I felt like it gave me some kind of superpower at the time. It was just like some, some, some softer, more emotionally intelligent way of seeing things, more patience, more composure. All of these kind of things very quickly started becoming open to me. And I realized how out of touch I'd been with myself. So at a time where I was really stressed, it gave me this relief into... Yeah, into feeling calm. And I just thought, I knew, I just knew this is going to take me somewhere. I didn't know where it would take me, but I just knew this was going to, this was going to become a part of my life now forever. And ever since that moment, I haven't stopped using meditation as a tool to relieve stress, to uh, learn how to reflect and get in touch with what's most important to me to kind of manage anxiety. Yeah, it's just been, a, it's been an amazing tool, basically. And I, and I think finding it at a time where I was stressed was important as well because it it showed me the contrast of not being stressed and then I was able to start um yeah making decisions better in my life that moved me towards being less stressed and anxious basically I found it so amazing as to you know you you went along on on the meditation with your friend kind of 
not not expecting anything and getting it so much out of it, especially, you know, for the first time or kind of this one time. And personally myself, you know, I've I've tried to go to kind of meditations and I always haven't felt uh as successful. I don't know whether it's kind of me not opening up enough or, or really kind of feeding the process. But do you know what kind of, you know, attracted you or let you kind of really get in touch with your emotions in meditation? Um, this all links to the work I do with athletes, but I've done so much, so connected to my body through all the sport I've done that when I dropped into meditation, it I felt very connected to my body in a particular way because of the sporting background. Because of that, that sort of connection I had with my body, the meditation just clicked. Now, some people have like beginner's minds. You're stressed and you start meditating and then you have this, you have this opening experience and it makes sense to you. For some people, it's a slow burn. So it's not something that you get that immediate, like, oh, this is for me, but it's a slow burn that you've got to build into your life and you see incremental, slow, gradual changes. So there's no kind of right or wrong way that it affects you and both is valid. But for me, and this is why I find it interesting working with athletes, because when I work with athletes, they seem to get it in the same way. They get this immediate release. And I think it's to do with the connection they have with their body because they're so they're daily, they're so used to using their body in that way, like physically, that when when they drop into meditation, it gives a very quick release. Even the, the nervous system responds very quickly to, to the approach. And my approach is very much about feeling the body sensations, which is the most immediate way that you can learn to meditate. So I think that it's something to do with my conditioning that allowed me. And I, I think. Um, I'm also a very sensitive person and always have been, and it, it allowed me to understand that. Um, so I think it's complex and there's there's no right or wrong kind of way that meditation affects you either. It's it's every individual has a different journey with it. And it sounds a lot like it all has to do with the relationship between the body and the mind. Yeah. How does that work? Because on the, on the one with meditation, it sounds really, you know, you're, paying attention to kind of your body in the senses and, and, and the emotions and feelings, you know, is, does the mind act as a stressor of the body or how does that work? Well, if you break it down in terms of mindfulness, there's, there's three components. There's, you start with every interaction in the interaction. Now we're having the first thing that will happen is there's a sensation in the body of how we're connecting. You feel that's a very visceral thing. Then there's some kind of emotional response, which will be like, I like this person as a ha- there's a happy feeling or some kind of emotional response. And then there's the thought, which will be like dictating how I'm responding or like how we're thinking about this. And what happens is that that usually those three things, sensations, emotions, and thoughts get very hardwired together in a bit of a knot. Um, and meditation and mindfulness allows that to unravel a bit. So you start to see that all thoughts come from sensations and emotions in the body, and that's held in the body. When your body feels calm, your thoughts are calmer. If you're in a room with someone you don't like and they say something that annoys you, you feel it in your body. It's like, Ugh, it's like a dagger. And then you'll start, then the mind will kick in and you start thinking about that person, criticizing that person, judging yourself. So I think the connection between the mind and the body is so intricate and mindfulness helps slow down and let you see that if you become aware of the sensations in the body and your emotions, you can soften that and move away from the hamster wheel of the mind that's always going round, always judging, always busy, always acting, always responding. If you can learn to move away from that and step in to the body and soothe it and, and, and activate the parasympathetic nervous system that tells your body it's calm, it's not under threat, 
naturally your thoughts start to quieten down. So thoughts and thoughts in the body are so connected and we can learn to soothe the emotions, the sensations we hold in the body. And as we do that organically, our thoughts become quieter and we start to see, yeah, we start to see a shift. I want to kind of move on to the next stage, you know, of your of your life. You know, from working at this charity, what then made you decide to turn to kind of Buddhism? How did you decide to kind of work at the London Buddhist Center? Well, that's where I started to meditate first. And um, after meditating and realizing it was for me, I went on a retreat. I was pretty skeptical. I thought this is this is just for hippies. This isn't for me. And I was just like, well, I'm not not sure about this. But I went on it, and it gave me a, a you know gave me a really full experience of meditation, and it confirmed that actually this yeah meditation is for me. And then I, I built a connection with the Buddhist Center, the people who led the retreat, um, and then an opportunity emerged to start working there. And I I remember I was working in a care home at the time. I just got this email from one of the managers saying this job, and I just I pinged it back, started a conversation with him, and then I just I just thought no, I want to try something different. It was it was me following my gut again. Just I want to I want to work in a different culture, a different environment that has different values, and see what that's like. So that was one level. And then the other level is I realised that at university I did become interested in like non-Western legal systems and how different cultures operate. And and I just remember looking at the Buddhist Centre when I was hanging out with my professor, and that I just felt quite drawn. I just thought, I wonder how they do it there. I wonder what I wonder what it'd be like to live in that culture. And just step out of the norms of like being busy. And I, I started working there. And the first six months was the most anxiety-provoking six months of my life because I didn't have very much to do. And I realized how much the busyness of my life was had so much anxiety in it. And they were just like, you know, it was a very different culture, very effective culture, but it was a very slow-paced culture in, in that first six months and getting used to working in a in a Buddhist context where the value base was different. Um, and it was much more about how you connect with people and less about being effective. But as a result, because people, because there was that shift in culture, people were naturally quite effective. I think I, I became attracted to a different culture and a different way of doing things. And not to say that the Buddhist Center is perfect by all means, because I, but that first sort of year there gave me a, gave me some respite from the, from the drive and the driven, the drivenness all the way from, from wanting to play rugby. For England to all you know, this whole drive in my life through law, through being a support worker, and then wanting to move up into management, it just gave me respite and, and a more healthy culture to, to be in. And I think that's what I was really attracted to. That's amazing because, especially, you know, I would feel, you know, if, if I joined the Buddhist Center, then almost I would be, I guess you could say, almost feel like leaving, you know, leaving this kind of, you know, conventional society of, you know, drive and, and kind of hustle and, and everything and almost kind of, you know, a bit of an exodus for for, for, for a year. It was, it was. And it, it was a six-year um, sabbatical, if you like, for me. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of, I got very, very involved and I, I really appreciated the culture. Now, I had to leave for various reasons, which, which we can come on to. But, yeah, it was a, an amazing period to step out of the norms of my life and understand myself in a, in a different way. Um, and I would be able to go on retreat for, you know, two, three months a year. You know, it was just this contrast of living on retreat centers and, and, and learning meditation very deeply and then coming back. And, and I started managing the secular wing of the project, which was um, basically teaching mindfulness for addiction, depression, stress and anxiety. And 
and sort of leading that program and started working in corporate organizations and taking mindfulness out. And I also set up uh, community initiatives, um, setting up mindfulness projects with vulnerable groups of people out in the community. So so it was it became this very rich period of my life where I had this base where the culture was different. And then I could go into the world and try and bring bring my bring what I was learning, what was working, what and bring it out into different contexts. And I'm really interested in this, in being in between different worlds. At the moment, I work with leaders, I work with athletes, I work with vulnerable groups of young people, and they're all <clears throat> they're all in very different worlds. And I find it fascinating trying to bring that purpose, calm, meaning into like varieties of different spaces and spark people off wherever they are. It's fascinating how kind of, you know, these, as, as you say, these, these various kind of different contexts that on the face of them, you know, couldn't seem farther apart. You know, at the end of the day, have these common common issues of, of as you were saying, kind of, you know, um, calm, peace, purpose, kind of meaning in your six years there. I mean, whereas conventional society was a lot about kind of drive and ambition. What, what was the, the main focus in, uh, in, in Buddhism? I don't want to paint a pretty picture, and I'll, I'll I'll say more about that in a second. But I think that one of the core values is connection and friendship, and respecting people. And um, when conflicts emerge, trying to like find harmony and like ways to ways to actually communicate around difficult things. So, it, it, one of the values of this particular Buddhist tradition is friendship. Seeing that friendship is one of the most important things that holds things together, and that feeling authentically connected to the people you work with and the people in your life that that's one of their central values and i think yeah meditation is a is a, is a good tool at understanding yourself and developing your own positivity so you can connect with people more in a more kind of loving way that's one of the values behind what the what what this particular buddhist tradition is trying to do and and so then what decided you kind of not to stay um <clears throat> i think for me it was realizing that like living living and working at a buddhist center there's a path there there's a path which does get all the all the motives of success and drive get drawn into it or they did for me which is ordination so getting ordained into that tradition and becoming a monk essentially but it's a it's a different kind of buddhist tradition where you become a semi-monastic you can become sort of semi-monastic or you can you can still have a family it's a kind of western version of, of buddhism but Getting ordained is the path you take if you want to progress in that particular Buddhist tradition. Um, you don't have to get ordained, but because I was so driven and so ambitious and still had all this raw drive in me, that became my goal. So I went through a, about a five-year ordination process and, and got pretty close to being ready to get ordained. And then I realized this this isn't for me. I'm not a monk. You know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a lad. Um, like well as as well as being like sensitive and into spirituality and meditation, I'm 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 just a I'm I'm a rugby player. I'm a lad. I'm like I'm not you know. I, and and I had this conflict inside me, this feeling that I'm not meant to be living this kind of religious life in that way. At the same time, I learned these amazing principles and teachings and and and, and learned how to get confidence in my mindfulness practice. So my me leaving the Buddhist center, I learned so much there, and so grateful for what I, for what what happened there. But I realized that actually my individuality and wanting to bring meditation out to other people in a different way meant that I had to leave and set my own company up because I didn't, I don't think that the way that meditation is taught with fluffy clouds and it all and all of this, I don't think it's always accessible to people because life isn't like that. And I think mindfulness and meditation doesn't always make sense to people because 
first of all, they might need to get rid of some anger or some frustration or find a different way of communicating to someone that, that allows those energies to come out. And then we can learn to meditate. So that's why I set this company up to try and put a different image around meditation. And I think working with athletes helps raise the profile that meditation and mindfulness can be something dynamic, something that's done with elite sports people, something that isn't soft, something that isn't like fluffy clouds. It's, it's a serious thing that you can do and, and to put a, put a more dynamic kind of image behind it. And then another way that I've tried to do that is mixing meditation with boxing. Um, and I think this is this is the thing that's really taken off over the last three years. Um, and I think it, it's allowing young people, and we're, we're going to start expanding it, and have, we're going to have a corporate offering in this area as well, um, because it allows you to let some of that, you know, if you're in front of a screen all day or you're, you're frustrated as a young person because lots is going on, you box that energy out, you get it out, you, you work physically with your body, then you meditate, and then you're in a calmer place, you're more connected to your body, like I was saying earlier. That connection with my own body allowed me to meditate instinctively and quickly. But if you've done a boxing session, then you sit and connect with your body and you've let go of some energy. So many people have um, said back that it's just like they're, they're amazed at how quickly they can get into the meditation because they're, because they're actually engaging with how they feel as opposed to sitting down, meditating and expecting something to happen. But if you've been busy all day, your, your energy is up near your head. And, you're, and, and you might be, your thoughts might be very quick. So it's adding meditation on top of that can be quite unhelpful in my experience. Yeah, I was initially surprised when you said kind of the, the, the boxing meditation combo, because obviously, again, you know, I think you think boxing, you think kind of Rocky Balboa, masculine, kind of power heavy, you know, aggressive. And meditation as being, as, as, as you were saying before, kind of the stereotypical kind of softness and, and more calm. But now when you put it that way, yeah it makes a lot more sense, especially with the working from home model and these virtual kind of environments, whether it be for school, university or, or work, you know, we're, we're just, we're always so kind of in a prone position, a remote position. And so really our bodies never let out kind of all the energy we build up. Yeah. I was actually going to ask, do you ever get kind of, you know, clients that, that don't really believe in it or that, that are resistant to the idea? Yeah. yeah hugely. Um, an interesting experience of that was working, I won't name the name, but a premiership rugby club, um, which had an amazing experience with them. But it was the third, I was working there for a year, um, once a week doing doing a day there with, with the team and with individuals. And the first three months it was, and I knew it was going to be a challenge, but it's like, how do you get a group of male rugby players to take meditation seriously? Because the culture is very laddie and it's very like, you know, showing feeling, showing weakness, showing anything sensitive is not kind of okay in that in, in that environment. Highly competitive environment, highly driven environment, and we 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 introduced that program very intelligently. They allowed me to just wander around the changing rooms, make connections with players um, without any kind of pressure. You've got to sit down and do this meditation thing, but because it was introduced in that way, that allowed me to connect with them and just as lads, just as rugby players. And then we started doing bits of one-to-one -one work and group work. It worked really well, but there were times where I'd be in the room with them and it would just be a, a laugh. We just had, it would just, you know, had to just be a lad with them for a bit and then say, okay, we draw the line now, give this a go. But because I know that culture and I know I've been a rugby player, I can, I can communicate on that level. And, and then they, they learned to take it seriously. And, and, and then I made some amazing connections with, with many, many people um, at that club and, and it worked. 
because it was introduced sensitively, but there was loads of resistance because it's not, it's quite counter the culture of a rugby club to sit, be still, feel, take time out from the pressures of the structures that you're in. But when players got the feeling for it, it you know, I'd walk into the club sometimes and players would just want to grab me and, and, and do a session. And, and I'm still in connection with them now and I still do work individual one-to-one work with, with, <clears throat> with some of the players um, and feel really, <clears throat> feel like I've made some kind of lifelong connections there with, with some really amazing, amazing guys. But yeah, loads of resistance. But the, the resistance can be overcome if you, if you work in the right way and you're aware of it and it doesn't frighten you that people are going to be resistant and, and accept it. And, and uh, yeah, so that was one example. The second example was um, working in a school and um, a young lad came up to me at the end of the session and said, you really, t- you really think this meditation thing is going to help me when I've got a group of lads telling me to stab somebody to be part of a gang? And he just sort of laughed at me. And I just was like, yeah, it, it really made me think that is that was a real resistance. But it was actually a wake up call for me because it was like, how do you make this meditation thing accessible to young people that are in situations like this? So it wasn't a resistance. It was a wake up call to actually then start thinking about boxing and meditation as a way to make it accessible. So the resistances that I faced, they can be overcome if you think about delivering the mindfulness on the terms of the people you're delivering it with, whether that's young people who are in really complex situations, boxing meditation makes that accessible to them. Working with like elite athletes, it's got to be, you've got to engage with their culture, understand their resistances, understand the frameworks they're working within, and then deliver it appropriately. So yeah, um, another resistance area is working with leaders sometimes and just then taking it seriously because they're so busy and not implementing it and just trying to see it as a technique and, um, and not actually taking it seriously. So there's always resistances because meditation and mindfulness takes you into how you feel and how we feel isn't always pleasant. So it's, it's the skill to see where the resistances are and then make, you know, make people feel comfortable and understand and on their own terms. And so how would you define what mindfulness is? I feel it's become a term that's so popular kind of right now in our society. You know, it's practically become corporatized in a sense, but you don't really seem to get kind of a, a consistent answer as to what it is. I'd say everybody's experienced mindfulness and it is being absorbed in something. It could be reading a book. It could be having a conversation, anything where you right, right now, I'm not thinking about anything. I'm absorbed in this conversation and my thoughts are coming out as if I'm in the flow, like in sport, they call it when you're in the flow in that state of awareness where you're just, you're just kind of in something that is a mindful state. That is where mindfulness is trying to take you. So we've all experienced that meditation is not a monopoly on that. You need to look for areas in your life wherever, wherever you get absorbed in something, that is mindfulness. You're being very aware and mindful and you're absorbed in what you're doing. So that is that is a mindful state. Um, and I like to normalise it in that way so people can relate to it. And then what mindfulness gives you is the ability to work with the distractions that and the resistances that you face that take you away from being like that. It helps you get more absorbed in what you're doing, whether that's work, whether that's a conversation, whether that's reading a book, whether that's meditating. Mindfulness is helping you get absorbed in what you're doing and live a, live a more absorbed life as opposed to a life that is caught with thoughts and distractions and constantly thinking about things. 
And so if we take the examples of, of two areas that you work with, particularly kind of professional athletes and, and high-level corporates, what similarities have you found between them as to kind of, you know, the pressures or the distractions or the thoughts that they have to prevent them from engaging in this kind of flow state? The thing that unifies the, the two is the, is the feeling of, of pressure. And I think with athletes, it's constantly in performance review meetings, constantly training, constantly competing, constantly in competition with others, driving, striving. There's a lot of fun in that, a lot of, a lot of good stuff. But it's the, it's the pressure of that which leads to a feeling of unhappiness and forgetting what they enjoy about what they do. And the same with leaders. It's the responsibility of being a leader, having that influence, having that status position and standing that is obviously also very rewarding and can have a lot of positive influence. But there's a certain internal pressure that, that of holding that responsibility and holding the responsibility of being an athlete and all of the complexities of, of doing that. And I think that what's unified, what, what I see that's unified is when I'm working with leaders and when I'm working with athletes is that when I meditate with them, I ask them both very simple questions. What makes you happy in your life? And a lot of a lot of people I work with don't know because they get so caught up in the work or the athlete world and the structures and, and they forget what's most important. So I think that's a, a unifying factor with, with high-achieving high individuals, athletes, leaders, anyone actually that's got drive and ambition. And, and that's not to say that drive and ambition isn't great and being an athlete isn't great and being a leader isn't great. It's not about that. It's about coming out of balance with what's most important. And with a lot of leaders, a lot of people I work with, it's the simple things like remembering their family, their friends, the things that make them happy, going to the gym, all the simple things about the routines of daily life that you do for your own well-being that mean something to you sometimes get forgotten. And with rugby players, it's forgetting the enjoyment. Sports people forgetting the, the enjoyment of what sport means to them without the added pressure of being the best, achieving all of this kind of stuff. One of the things which must also stress them a lot is, you know, they might be un unhappy in the process, but the fear of failure, you know, when you stopped playing rugby and when you stopped, you know, stepped down from being a director at the charity, did you leave with any of that sense of failure that was so feared about or that you might yourself have feared in the process? Yeah. So fe fear of failure for me has been something that has played me throughout my whole of my life. And I, you know, when I became a support worker, and then very quickly wanted to move up into management and become a director of this charity and so on. A lot of it was fear of not being successful, fear of being seen as a failure by other people and my own lack of self-worth, really. So, yeah, it's something that I really resonate with. And I think with athletes and leaders, when they go through transitions out of sport or into retirement or things change, there's this big fear of not being successful and being seen as a failure by people around them um, that I really resonate with. Another popular kind of theme that we see a lot in our society now is, is burnout, especially in kind of the legal and, and kind of corporate worlds. Yeah. Do, do you find a lot of your clients facing it? And, and if so, kind of, you know, what do you feel are the common causes or the signs of, of burnout? Um, yeah, well, burnout is, is very prevalent at the moment. And um, I mean, the signs are, Oh, mental and physical like your mind always in overdrive you're trying to sleep and your mind just won't switch off that's a common sign that you're just not your emotions are just not processing enough and you just can't switch your mind off and then the body feeling uncomfortable and anxious feelings and just not feeling 
yeah, feeling like anxious and and your body not feeling comfortable. They're the two kind of mental and physical signs, and and then how that leads to reactivity in your life, how you react to your friends and partners, um, your family, or yeah, high levels of reactivity and argumentativeness, and just not not do, not enjoying the things outside of work. I'd say they're the, the three kind of signs that you're kind of feeling a bit overloaded. And then fear, fear that that's going to lead you to not be able to to carry on working and like you can start building up a kind of fear that you're not going to be able to cope. Um, and when that gets compounded, it gets, yeah, you, you, you get into a position where, you know, people can have panic attacks, people can feel very, very kind of isolated. Um, yeah, so that's, I'd say that's the kind of symptoms of it. And I think that what what causes it is, it's complex for every individual, but it's it is to do with feeling disconnected from your 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 body, your emotions, and and actually enjoying life. And if you overdo it with work and you push yourself in directions that don't feel authentic, if you do that over time, you do get this you do get this buildup of stress um, and pressure internally. I'm guessing kind of how people kind of address their burnout or try and avoid burnout is a return to the, to paying attention to your body well i think it's i think it's about setting up a routine that allows you to regulate your emotions um, and not get this build up of, of of energy and emotions that causes that pressure so it, it, it's very simple on one level in terms of like actually building things into your life and i think meditation is one thing um just 10 minutes a day can have a big impact in just helping you regulate how you feel um, so on one level, just setting up routines that have good men- like meditation, going to the gym, keeping socially connected and remembering that these are the things that are important and not letting work and the drives of other people dominate the whole of your evening or like cook, eat into your weekend. It's having the discipline uh, to know what the things are that actually keep you balanced and really sticking to them and having boundaries, having boundaries so you know, actually, I need to do these things in my life. These things are important. They make they make me feel balanced. And when you get overly absorbed in work, a lot of the time it can be managers or other people's agendas. You're trying to please people. You're trying to prove yourself. All these kind of drives can be very strong and actually stop you from setting the routines up and doing the things that actually support your well-being. Funny that you say that kind of, you know, especially you know, addressing that, that that driver, you know, the, the especially the, the drive to, to, to please people, because I think that is informed or influenced so much by our hustle culture in this society, the idea of driving to the top. And I, I think it, it affects kind of everyone, but it seems to be quite central to this idea of, of masculinity and, and what it is to, to be a man. We get told that you've got to be ambitious, aggressive, even above all, kind of without emotion or compartmentalizing emotion. You know, you've got to do it alone. And, and that's what really makes you kind of a man. You know? I was wondering from your experience, you know, to what end is this kind of a toxic behavior and how does it end up backfiring? Well, I think I, I look at it from like um, to be in that environment, it sets a particular culture. And if you've got a leader or somebody or in a management position that kind of set that tone, it can be very damaging. But I, I mean, from through my work, I look at it empathetically because I do work with people who are in that position. And the behavior is toxic because it, 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 it denies sensitivity. It denies the importance of connection. It denies valuing people for who they are, not just what they give you and, and, and what they give to an organization. 
And I think this is very damaging because it doesn't empower it doesn't empower a culture that allows you to be be anything but a driven product of a, of a company or something. So it, it can be quite toxic. But in terms of looking at it, what's underneath the behaviour, it's a lot of unhappiness, really, and a lot of kind of suppression in individuals that lead and manage in that way that are not very confident in themselves. Because it's externally quite full of bravado and quite, um, as a man, you know, lots of humour and all of this that kind of can mask a lot of vulnerability in individuals. And that's where I think it's really toxic. Um, but when I'm working with people who have kind of traits like that, it's actually trying to get them to own their feelings, their vulnerability, uh, their sensitivity. Because in every individual that acts in that way, there is a, there is a, there's, a, there's a real sensitivity and vulnerability to them. They just don't know how to feel it and engage with it and let it out. And I think for me, being I'm a man that does have a lot of drive, a lot of energy to kind of achieve and do all of that. But I'm also very sensitive and I'm very aware of developing a motif for men within myself through the work I do that represents both being driven, being successful, being um, ambitious, but also being able to communicate, being able to be sensitive, being able to take people in and have the soft skills and the emotional intelligence to do that, but also have the vigor and the drive. So you need, I think we, as men, I think both sides are important. And I think we can easily um, fall into this stereotypical kind of way of doing things that's just crack on, stiff up a lip, loads of banter. All of that is good in a way. There's something in that that's good, it's camaraderie, but it's knowing when to draw the line and having the emotional intelligence to know how to empower people, which I think can be lacking in a lot of organisations and a lot of people. I really respect that and because I, I feel that that's, that's quite important in terms of, you know, grounding people in their emotional sensitivity to, at the end of the day, excel, even though, you know, societally, we might be pressured into thinking that an emotion is bad. You know, it seems from what you're saying, especially for in the long term, it's actually good to be in touch with one's emotions. I think so. And and I, I've got an example. I've got one of, one of the board members for my company I'm doing some coaching with. He's a, he's a CEO of a very successful company. And one of the things he does as a leader, he has he brings psychologists in and support to help help people realize if they need to leave the company as opposed to trying to like control them and drive them. And and I think this is this is a really smart move because it's recognizing that actually if you've got something like that in place in an organization, it allows it's allowing people sensitivity, allowing maybe maybe working for that company will have will only be for a couple of years or three years, but by empowering that person to let let their life in, let their ambitions in, let the things, let them talk about the things that they actually really want to do in life, even if it's not what they're doing right now. It's kind of really smart because it's letting in that person, their feeling, what's important to them. And therefore, they feel loyal to the company because they're being taken seriously as an individual. Therefore, they will want to work for the company, but they'll know that, you know, in a couple of years or three years, they'll move on to something else and the company's supporting them to do that. And it builds loyalty, it builds genuine connection. And it's a really, I think it's a really smart move um, on his part as a leader of that organization. And do you ever feel that sometimes it leads them to realize that, well, actually, you know, sport isn't for me, or at least sport at this athletic level isn't for me, or, you know, working as, as a leader or at this top tier kind of corporate organization just isn't what's making me happy. And at the end of the day, the kind of their resolution is to is, is to kind of leave. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I'd, I'd say a lot of my work is working with people in transition 
whether that's people transitioning out of university, even into like finding their job, sports people transitioning when they're injured and realizing they may not have a career, or sports people transitioning into retirement, leaders that have got very into a very, very successful position but don't feel happy and have to start coming to terms with transitioning out of that. So in the back of my mind, this is always something that I'm aware of. And even when I'm working with very successful athletes, it's always trying to get them to think that this is finite. It's only going to last maximum until you're 35. So it's always going to change. And and every leader, every person that gets into a a position of status or any job, like there's going to be change. So I'm always always asking the questions that allow people to think about what's actually most important in their lives. And usually what's most important is not the work or the athlete whatever the athlete is doing it's it's their friends the family it's starting to think about what gives them real passion and helping them helping them transition in a way that that, that's meaningful and see the value in going through transitions because I think transitions are so important and I've been through so many and they've been so valuable yeah actually I was was wondering if you you could elaborate uh, a bit on that with with transition because I really liked it how you talked about kind of well athletes you know that they're in their prime you know the the time is finite I mean a lot of these examples it it sounds that you know these people feel like their clock is ticking you know that they're, they're not going to be at this forever and then when it ends you know you know the the curtain the the gigs over you know the curtains uh, are drawn back i guess how do you help someone transition from that when you know they're at the top of their game and they're being celebrated for it but they feel that you know it's not going to last forever and in fact it might be ending very soon well i've got I mean, one of one of the things in this area that is very pertinent to me is one of a, a friend of mine um committed suicide in his 20s, who was a professional rugby player and had an injury and went through a transition and couldn't come to, come to terms with it. So he left a note and, and, and he ended his life. And that was that was not, not, I mean, it's complex, really. Who knows what was really going on? But that was part of coming to terms with, he wasn't really, he wasn't going to be, a, be an athlete any longer because of the injury he had and he couldn't face the fear of failure, that like the, the, all of the, he just couldn't, he couldn't face that. And I think when I'm working with athletes, it's just, I think it's subtle because I think just working with an athlete who's very driven in that way and getting them to understand their emotions, their feelings, giving them tools that can manage stress and anxiety on one level, that's going to help them when they transition because wherever you are, whenever you transition out of sport, you're always going to have this depression or this, this feeling of, of, of not knowing who you are after you've stepped out of such a strong structure of um, camaraderie, like friendship, connection, and all of the kind of status that you get and all of that. So there's always going to be this dip of depression. Lots of athletes experience that. Lots of anyone that transitions out of a job, there's always this like lost period. So it's giving people, giving athletes the tools um, and understanding they can manage emotions like anger, sadness, frustration. They can, they've got that in their toolkit to understand that. And on another level, I just ask, I keep asking simple but pertinent questions. What's most important to your life? What could you see your future being? Just when, when you're in, when you've done a meditation, you're usually more open and just like asking them questions and getting them reflecting and thinking about what are the, what are the most important things to them. So even when they're not doing sport, there's, there's things in their life that, that are important to them that they can start um, moving towards and getting a different transitioning out of that out of their sporting career and knowing knowing who the important connections are in their life 
um, having a, having a vision that's for their life that isn't just about sport. What what actually inspires them outside is the ways that they can take their experiences into other areas. So yeah, these are the kind of conversations I get into. First off, let me say you know I'm I'm so sorry uh, about your friend, and I wanted to ask because especially with with the pandemic, you know, uh, a lot of kind of the social connections or the social activities uh, we we'd normally do on a day in day out basis have been kind of restricted or, or interrupted in a in a great way, and kind of male suicide, especially in kind of youths, is something that's continuously being talked about on the rise. And I was wondering, you know, what what words do you have, you know, as you know, between men that we can do to really kind of reach out to, to, to our friends to make sure that they're okay? Well, one of the things that happens, I think, particularly with men is, is going into being very isolated, feeling very, you can be in a lot of connection with people um, as a man and as a woman. I, I, I notice this a lot with men. You can be in a lot of connection, but not really saying how you feel and having this very isolated feeling inside because a lot of emotions there that, that are not understood and it leads to this feeling of feeling very isolated and alone. Um, so one of the things to help is just is just finding finding a context to talk. And I think for men to talk can be quite hard to talk about feelings, talk about emotions. It's been a it, it, yeah, it's been something that I've had to really come to terms with in my life um, and talk about how you feel and be vulnerable, be willing to be be vulnerable and being vulnerable is hard. It's very hard for men to be vulnerable because it's, it's this feeling of weakness and yeah, it's a very hard thing to, to let, let into your life. So it's finding connections in your life that where you can be vulnerable. And for me, I've been on a therapeutic journey around this. I've done therapy. I've got a circle of, of close friends that I've been able to communicate with. And actually within vulnerability is where you find that balance to the to the drive to this other side of, of masculinity, which is much more driven and dynamic and ambitious. The more you can be that and also be willing to be vulnerable, the more balance you feel in your life. And this has been my journey. And and also this is why boxing and mindfulness makes sense to me because it's the the dynamic, the masculine driven element of boxing mixed with the sensitivity, the feminine meditation element. And I think as men we need to have both. And I think we can have, but it's it's a journey and it requires courage to be willing to be vulnerable and find whether it's therapy, whether it's a good friend, whether it's a partner, just be willing to find a space in your life and just be honest about how you feel. I want to kind of focus more on kind of the, the community work that you do now, um, as particularly with kind of youths, you know, would you mind telling us a little more about that and what motivated you to do that? Yeah, it will, like I was saying earlier, it was just trying to make uh, meditation accessible to young people that don't want to sit still, don't necessarily want to meditate, don't know how to, and just don't think it's for them in their head. Um, I didn't want to meditate when I was 15 with all the energy I had and what I was going through. So it was just, it was a, um, it was just, I actually had a meeting with um, one of the Department of Health and Social Care. I, I just came up with this, I, I just had a conversation, so I I, I like the idea of going out into boxing gyms and bringing meditation there. And I just got a load of encouragement from this person and said there could be something really in that. And I just went down to a boxing gym. I had a, had a word with one of the one of the lead boxers and just said, I want to try this program. And then got some funding from uh, the mayor of London and, and we just piloted this program and it just worked. And it was all, it was just about making, it was almost smuggling meditation in with something much more dynamic and much more kind of, 
cool, if you like. And it, it just really, really worked. And then that led to, in the pandemic, we developed a partnership with Bernardo's and did a, a year-long pandemic program where we were live streaming box meditation down the country. And then since then, it's picked up more and more momentum. And um, we are now looking at this combination of boxing and medicine and, and, and looking to package it for the corporate world as a kind of innovative, slightly novel, intriguing way of looking after well-being um, for organisations. And, um, yeah, so it's the, the community work is starting to move into our corporate vision as well. And as there's something really nice about doing boxing and mindfulness with really disadvantaged groups of young people, and at the other end of the scale, doing it with corporate organisations and and seeing seeing if it works across the diversity of all the people that we do it with. And I think you know the this cross fertilization between the various areas um, of, of people that you work with, you know, really shows just the, the common ground as to you know how important it is for all, all of us, you know, to take care of our mental health, but also to be you know, ultimately mindful. And it's a you know we're, we're human after all. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to kind of bring it back to kind of one of the early examples that you discussed about kind of the young boy, you know, the community work, asking you kind of, you know, how's this going to help me if at the end of the day, I've got, you know, gangs or, or groups telling me to kind of stab someone with your community work, like how, how have you found to kind of overcome that barrier? One of the, one of the key ways that we do that is well, I work with, I work with boxing coaches who have got a real command over a particular kind of respect. So I work with the, the founder of the East London Boxing Academy, and he's really good at working with with young people that are in that kind of position. You know, type, you know, a lot of a lot of different gangs come down to those boxing gyms, and he's key communicates to them. He's also a senior police officer. He he knows how to communicate, and a lot of the boxing coaches I work with have come through lived experiences of, um, of being in those situations. So there's a particular. I feel I feel like I'm working with people that allow to to create that kind of respect with the young people that this is this is safe this this guy gets me like I, you know it's we're not in school there's a kind of there's a kind of respect that I get through working with boxing coaches and I also make sure the boxing coaches respect what I do and understand the meditation element and see the combination so I feel like the boxing coaches give me a pathway in once we've done the boxing element we've made the connection we're talking and we're kind of on we're on board with each other it gives me pathway to talk about meditation more training more as something i do with elite athletes something that you can do as well um we've trained our body using boxing we're now going to train our mind using meditations narrative developing that crosses uh, the two but because i work with the work with characters that i respect that have been through lifting i think that really helps and young people take the program seriously and, and be interested in it and how have you found kind of, you know, the, the direct impact that you're having on, on, on these kind of used lives? It's something we're looking at at the moment. How do we like monitor and evaluate the impact we do? The, the most impactful way that we've done it is through interviewing young people and families and seeing what, what impact the sessions have had on them. I'm going through a process at the moment where I'm calling 200 of our, uh, our database, 200 of our families in our database, and that's just, and just finding out what, what impact it's had. And, um, to give you a live a live example, there was one young girl who had one of her kind of she had extreme anxiety issues and was picking her front teeth out. That was one of the one of the one of the habits that she formed around that picking her teeth literally. And then I, I spoke to her, her mother and she said that since she started doing the boxing and meditation classes, she meditated every night and it's the only time in her life 
that she stopped picking her teeth in that way. So I, I, I call parents, I hear moving stories about how work particularly is impacting young people. Um, and there was another, another person who was suicidal recently and stopped engaging with all, all of the youth services that, that this person was engaged with. And the youth worker called me and said, the only thing that this person is attending is boxing and mindfulness. She said, the reason why is it's the only thing that's important to me right now. And one of the, one of the things that we, we, we drew out of that was that it was giving her a space where she could let go of some of the frustration through the boxing and just feel contained through the meditation. It just contains your emotions, makes you feel grounded and balanced. Even if it's just for an hour, if you're going through loads of, if you're going through something really tricky, just having that respite for an hour where you where you feel contained and you've let out some steam and you can feel how you are and that be okay. This this is having a big impact, and we're doing we're doing a lot of work um, over the next year about how we evaluate and how we how we collate an evidence base to really demonstrate the impact of what we're doing. But a lot of it, a lot of the meaningful feedback comes from conversations and interviews with with young people and, and parents and creating video video evaluation from that. Yeah, we've talked a lot about resistance, um, but also you know some people might come and tell you that the problem isn't kind of them or kind of their emotions, but it's, it's kind of structural, you know, it's the corporate culture, it's the athlete world, it's the social system. Um, when these structures are broken, such that they produce kind of an overwhelming amount of anxiety or push people into paths where they feel kind of trapped or stuck. Now, how, how do you respond to that? You know, what advice do you give them? I think there's two ways you can respond to it. Well, there's three ways. The first way is you can, you can battle against the system and and put put the responsibility on the system, which ultimately that there's a truth in that. Yeah, the, these structures are broken. Um, and that leads to a lot, that can lead to a lot of anger and frustration. But I don't think it's the way to solve the problem. I think the way the way to solve it, individual needs to step into more individuality. And that can to two outcomes. It can lead to the individual learning how to manage their reactions to it and develop more emotional intelligence to kind of deal with it, put, be confident enough to set boundaries with their managers, be confident to say no to things, and then live with the consequences of that and develop more individuality to actually be in those structures, but be who they are. Now, that, that's a hard journey. Um, but I think that's, that's, one, that, you know, that's one of the main ways that I think individuals have influence on these structures, be willing to stand up for what they think is right and, and, and develop the aware emotional intelligence to actually work within environments like that and not let it dominate their lives. So that becomes a growthful process. The other thing that can happen with developing individuality in this way is you, you develop the confidence to realise this is not for me and you, you develop the, the courage to, to, to make a change and take a risk and do something different and figure out, actually, do I want to be in this environment or not? And if I don't, what can I move towards? What do I actually want to do? So I think they're the two, they're the two ways. And I think it's about yeah, developing uh, a mature individuality that, that can recognise that you can't, don't, don't put all the onus on the structure because you're within the structure and you can have an influence on that structure by being more boundaries, by being more confident, by knowing knowing what your limits are, knowing where, knowing when to say no and actually, yeah, develop that kind of intelligence is really important. I think if you are going to work in those structures. Out of your whole kind of journey and, and all the work that you've been doing so far, what's been the highlight moment for you or kind of one, you know, your, your most, your, your proudest moment so far? In terms of my work, I think that 
partner, partnering with Bernardo's and seeing the impact of helping 300 young people during the pandemic and getting the feedback in yeah, just being part of a part of a recovery process of COVID and working such a big organization that took us seriously as a tiny organization, really. That's something I'm I'm most proud of about what we've achieved um, and what that's led to. And then the second thing is is work, yeah, working with working with Harlequins Rugby Club and winning the players over and developing real connections with them and getting them to see that mindfulness is something that can aid their life. That the journey with them took me back to my own rugby days and some of my own wounding around all of that, and it was a it was a healing journey for me. But making those connections and, and seeing the impact of mindfulness and yeah, that those two things uh, strike me both in the elite sports and in the in the community. Doing those two new projects has been my highlight over the last three years. And so, for our listeners, you know, how can people kind of? take mindfulness and, and start thinking about applying it into their own lives. I feel, you know, as, as we said before, that the concept has become so popularized, corporatized, that a lot of people get kind of the advice of downloading this app or reading that book or listening to this podcast. Um, I was wondering kind of, you know, if, if really you wanted to break it down to, to the first step that people could take, what would you recommend? I would say don't put pressure on yourself because the driven, ambitious drives can easily um, bleed into meditation and you've got to feel like you've got to do it and you put pressure on yourself. I would say that the most important thing, and the the scientific studies around this as well, 10 minutes a day makes a huge difference. And there's been studies that show that it does change the neuropathways in your brain if you consistently meditate for 10 minutes a day over a six-month period. So I think it's doing little but regularly and making making it part of your life, finding 10 minutes a day to sit and follow a meditation that uh, you like and just let that be the thing you do and just see how that, um, developing awareness in that way, see how that bleeds into your life and see what, see what, see how that makes you feel. So not to, not put too much pressure on, but try and keep it consistent and try 10 minutes a day. Keep it really simple. And in your kind of journey, you know, not only the, the, the three years, but, you know, ever since you, you ever, ever since the start of your journey, kind of playing rugby for, for England, what has been the most important insight for you? It's, um, it, for me, the most important insight is looking back at all of the different experiences I've had and, and seeing that the most important thing has been the connections I've made with people, not the achievements that I've achieved with law, with, with the England rugby thing. It was about friendships, the bonds, with the law degree, it was about the connections with the, the the lecturers, the friends I made. These are the things that I remember now. Even with my performance, it's the people I connect with in the community, the people I work with. It's not it's not actually the achievements. The more I reflect back and take space, it's the people I'm connecting with that means means the most to me. So yeah, within all the things that we do, I think that <clears throat> and all the things that I've done, it's about the, the incredible people I've met that have taught me lessons and hopefully I've been able to help in what way I can. These, these are the these are the things that when you when you when you boil it down, it's the connections you make with people that that need to be remembered. 
And now just to kind of finish it up, I always like to end off these podcasts on a bit of a lighthearted note. Um, and so you've told you you've told me about how you know you found a lot of connection in law school with you know law and philosophy and law and kind of non-Western legal systems. I was wondering if you could tell us what legal subjects you found the least connection with, or you know, whether there was one in particular which you hated. Competition law. That was a, a subject that I, um, I don't know why I chose it, but I chose it in my third year and I, I, I just found it so boring. Um, I was going to say, first off, you know, it's, it, yeah. it doesn't sound like a core module. <laughs> so you kind of, you shot yourself in the foot with that one. But um, yeah, totally. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, I actually did it. It was a friend that it was Will, a, a shared friend. He, he, he studied it and I thought I'll study it because he's studying it. And oh, it was really dry, really dry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely, de- definitely not as, uh, as, as thoughtful or as conceptual demanding as uh, law and philosophy. <laughs> no, no. Anyways, Luke, thank you so much for coming. Coming on to the podcast, you know, if any of our listeners um, have any questions um, after this interview, uh, can they reach out to you? And uh, if so, how? Yeah, to reach out to me, just type in www.mindfulpeakperformance.com and there's a reach out button if you want to have a conversation. My number's on there as well. I'm happy to take calls. Um, if anything, if this has been inspiring or you want to explore mindfulness, do reach out. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Luke. Thanks, Max. Well, that's the show, folks. If you enjoyed learning about mindfulness and want to know more, feel free to reach out to Luke. We've linked his LinkedIn profile in the show notes below. Special thanks to our unsung heroes of the week, Claire Herberg, for editing and producing the episode, and Matt Gedridge for the absolute bang of a theme song. As you might have heard, Legal Tea is hiring. Enjoying our exquisite brew? Have a knack for social media marketing and outreach? And are an avid tea drinker? Become the marketer at Legal Tea. Help us outreach to universities and law societies all across the UK, but also to our continental friends. If this sounds like a role for you, send us an email at hello at legalt.uk or DM us on our social media platforms at legalt.uk for more information. Till next time. <laughs>